Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. We didn't finish this chapter last week, so we will read from the beginning and uh, tie in in our message the, uh, the chapter together. So let's start from Matthew chapter um, 16, verse 28 and through 17. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no man, excuse me, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? 
From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shikle. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. May God give us understanding in his word, challenge our hearts, speak to us, minister to us through his very word today. If you would remain standing with me, we'll have a word of prayer. Our choir will come after prayer and then the preaching of God's word for today. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for bringing us through this week. Not everyone came safely through this week. There's some who didn't wake up this morning. There's some who are not living. They were living earlier this week or last week, and they're not here with us today. So with this life, you've given us another opportunity to serve you, to honor you, to submit to you, to obey you, to follow you, to hear what you have to say. We thank you for that. We thank you for the coming together today of saints, saints here and believers all over the world that have taken this first day of the week, a Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead to celebrate our Savior, to thank you for what he has done to, to guarantee us eternal life. He died on the cross for our sins, the sins of those who will come to trust him. We thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you for what you sent him to do. May we not take it lightly. May we not forget it. May it be first and foremost in our minds as we worship, as we come, as we fellowship together, as we go from this place and, and go throughout this week. May we think of Jesus. May we reflect on what he has done and what that means for all of eternity for us. We give you praise. We give you the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Son of man coming in his kingdom. What he's saying is he's going to give them a glimpse of the kingdom. And in chapter 17, we see that happening. We see what's called the transfiguration. Jesus takes three of his disciples, James and Peter and John, and he takes them to a high mountain, just the three of them with Jesus, and there they see Jesus transformed before them. They see even his clothes is affected by this transformation. His clothes is, are, are white and gleaming. His face is shining like the sun. And appearing with him are two of the Old Testament saints. We see Moses and we see Elijah there and they're talking with Jesus. It doesn't tell us what that conversation is, but we know that this is a glimpse of Jesus and his kingdom. We see the Old Testament believers are represented there by Elijah and by Moses, and we see them a part of this fellowship with God. We also see the disciples, the group represented by Peter and James and John, are there, and Jesus is there. 
Now, Peter misunderstands what happens. Peter is, well, Peter is himself. And he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. It's an amazing scene that he sees, and he says to Jesus, hey, look, wow, this is great. This is great. I think I'll make a, a tent to, to represent one for Moses, one for Elijah, and yeah, one for you too. And while he's still talking, the Bible says a cloud comes and overshadows them, and a voice comes from this cloud. Obviously, it's the voice of the Father. How do we know? Because of what he says. And secondly, Matthew in, in the gospel earlier in chapter 3 has already given us an image of this that happened uh, uh, at Jesus' baptism. God the Father comes at this baptism and overshadows the people there and speaks from this cloud and says almost the exact same thing. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At this point, he adds this phrase, listen to him. In other words, the focus of the kingdom is going to be a focus on Jesus himself. He's the reason for it all. In the kingdom, we're going to come have fellowship with him. We're going to be worshiping him, glorifying him. The focus is going to be on him. Now, for, for, for us today, we, we kind of like, wow, what, 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 what does that mean? Because people today come into church and, and they get bored. And so some people think, well, heaven is going to be boring. Now, to solve that issue, people have tried to make church exciting. Wrong move. Because it's not the external things that happen in church that make it exciting. You see, in this vision of Jesus in the kingdom, there is nothing that's, like, exciting that we see except for Jesus. In other words... He takes the focus. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be bored in heaven and, and uh, people think all we're going to do is be worshiping Jesus, worshiping Jesus, worshiping Jesus. They say that that way as if we're going to get tired of that. We're going to get bored with that. But if you understand what Scripture says about what heaven is like, we understand it is an absolutely glorious place. It's so glorious, we can't even describe it in human languages. God gives certain individuals glimpses of heaven, and when we look at it, we get scared. <laughs> we get scared. Brian is, is Elder Brian is going through Ezekiel in, in Wednesday, and he's talking about the visions of Ezekiel. And we go, man, ooh, that's strange. Wow. What is that supposed to tell us? What is that supposed to show us? And some of us won't even read Revelation because we're scared of it. And yet there, God is simply saying, look, this is what's going to happen in my kingdom. I am going to call my saints to myself where we have eternal fellowship, and I'm going to judge all unrighteousness. That's what happens. Notice who ain't invited there in this image. <laughs> no, none of the Pharisees, not, no random people. It's, it's invitation only is what it is. It's invitation only. The focus then is on Jesus. It's like he radiates this glory and this light. So it's like 
all you can see is him. What that means is, as glorious as we know heaven to be, we talk about streets that are paved with gold. We, we talk about just in our own language, it's the best of the best of the best. We can't even imagine it. Jesus overshadows all of that. All of that. Choir saying, because of who you are, we give you glory. Because of who Jesus is. And so, the more that we see Jesus, the more we will appreciate him. And it's in that state that we will, we will live eternally. Now, what, what's that like? I, I cannot describe it to you. All I can say is this. God gives us the capacity to enjoy him fully. And that's what we're going to have. He shows that by Jesus' transformed body. It's different. Our bodies are, New Testament informs us, our bodies are going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. In other words, we won't get bored, we won't get tired. We'll be able to enjoy joy forever. See, everything in this world is, is, is um, it's trying to duplicate some joy. Wine is a symbol of joy. The problem is, though, you try to get too much joy <laughs> and you can't handle it because your body isn't made to handle that. We have all these drugs, and, and so people are trying to take these drugs. They go, ooh, I love this high, and they chase that high for the rest of their life, and they never get it. It never, it never delivers what it advertises. It's more dangerous to us than the joy that we can derive from it. God says, I'm going to give you heaven that won't have that aspect. You will be able to get high on me forever and enjoy me forever. You will be able to, uh, to, 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 to gaze at my glory and take it all in as if nothing else around you is happening. That's how fixed we will be on, on Jesus and enjoying every moment of it. Now, there's an aspect of fellowship there that we'll enjoy each other's fellowship as well. But the whole reason for that is Jesus. So, you know, the Bible doesn't even get into all the details. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, look, you can't even express or imagine the things that God has, has, has reserved for us. The things he has in store for us. And so, it, it, that, that's why the Bible says this. We walk by faith and not by sight. We understand that God has built this for us. We can't imagine what it's going to be like, but we know it's going to be glorious. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He kind of put it in language we can understand. I'm, I'm building a mansion for you. You got this raggedy tent, this toe-up place that you're living in now. I'm building a mansion for you. I'm preparing it for you so that where I am, the way I'm going to live, you're going to live with me. So that just gives us a glimpse of what it's like. Here, in the short end, it's saying this. It's going to be well worth it. There's nothing on earth that you can compare it to. You know, all of our learning here on earth is comparative. In, in other words, we, we, we experience something, and so what we learn that is new has to be compared to what we already know, right? 
That's the problem. We don't know nothing about heaven. It, we cannot fully understand and comprehend this because it's beyond our mental capacity to, to take in. And so you notice God just gives us glimpses. And he says, walk by faith knowing I'm going to make it worth your while. I'm going to make it worth your while. And so this transfiguration of Jesus is really key in this chapter. Peter later, when he writes in 1 Peter, he describes the impact that this transfiguration has had on him. Uh, can, can, can we turn there just briefly? Um, let's just turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter, actually it's 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Um, bring this into context. Peter is talking to believers, and he's telling them, like, he's saying, hey, I want to show you, I want to speak to you, and I want to continually remind you of the things that Jesus has, has shared with me. In verse 10, he says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Then verse 12, he says this, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Let me go back to verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's saying God has given us everything that we need to live this life and give glory to him. And he says in verse 12, I want to always remind you of these things. And, and this, is, this is what I want to, want to focus on a little bit. He says, um, verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. He says, as long as I'm living, as long as I got life, I want to remind you of this truth. Then he says this, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So there's a couple things that really stuck with Peter, and that is Jesus shared with him how he was going to live his life and how he was going to die. And he's saying, I'm getting close to that time. And so the thing that Jesus has, has impressed on me, I'm, I'm remembering, and I want to just teach you as much as I can about what Christ has said before I leave this world. And so he says in verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So something had impressed Peter intensely that Jesus says, you can read it in John 21, how Peter was going to die by giving his life. He was going to be put to death unwillingly just as Jesus was. And so he shares this. But another thing impacted Peter 
that Jesus told him or shared with him. In verse 16, are you with me? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, say amen if you're there. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, look, we ain't just talking trash here. This ain't stuff we made up. We were there with Jesus. We were eyewitnesses of this Jesus that we preach to you. We saw it firsthand. What did he see firsthand? Here's what impacted him. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter repeats what happened on this mountain, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. It has impressed his heart. He describes it this way. He says, we were eyewitnesses in verse 16. We are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, we use that term to talk about the splendor that a king has, right? His, the honor and the glory that a king has, his majesty. Now, we in America, we don't use those terms because we don't have a king. We have a president. But we understand what that means. A king and his glory, his majesty, he says. In verse 17, it says, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father. He's saying at this moment, God the Father put his stamp of approval on him. And we were there to see it and hear it, and it impressed us. Because Peter was a little bit embarrassed, right? He's thinking, I'm going to honor all three of these men. They're great men. But God said, uh-uh, no, no, uh-uh. No, you're not going to honor Moses and Elijah the same way that you honor my son. You can think highly of these men, but my son is on a whole different level. He said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't say that about anybody else. Listen to him. See, Moses uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 13 and 18, he talked about a prophet who was going to come that God commanded all would listen to this prophet. He was speaking of Jesus. So Moses, when he was on that Mount of Transfiguration, was, was thinking, wow, he's here. This is the one that God had been talking about all along. Listen to him. Honor him. Peter's listening to this. He says, so when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. That's how Peter described this cloud that overshadowed them and a voice that came out of it, majestic glory. Peter said, hey, this was not, an un this was not the usual sky. This was not your plain old cloud that came on. And I wasn't here to crack of thunder. I heard the voice of God speak to us about his son. That's a powerful revelation that came to Peter at that place that he remembered. But I want to share something with you. you we kind of think, wow, I wish I was there. That would have been great. But Peter in the next verses shares something that just blows my mind. 
Let's read it. Verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice, this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, wait a minute. He compares the voice of God to the prophetic word that's coming. In other words, he's saying this voice of God was awesome. It impacted and changed my whole life. But there's something else. We have the prophetic word declared. He says, listen to this. We have... We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, he says, the word that God has written through the prophets, let me lift it up so you can see it, this holy Bible has the pull that God's audible voice had from heaven, and it's even more firmly confirmed. That in other words, just as God spoke to Peter, James, and John, and pointed them to Jesus by the audible voice that came from a cloud, Peter is explaining to us, we have the very word of God today. We have it today. In other words, he says, don't ignore God's word. Hear God's word, and this prophetic word points to Jesus. Just like the cloud and the voice that came says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That voice impacted Peter's life and transformed his thinking. Back in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus asked Peter, he asked all the disciples, who are people, who are people saying that I am? And they came back and said, you know, some saying you're great, wonderful prophets. And he backed up. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you didn't get that knowledge on your own. God the Father revealed this to you. And now in chapter 17, God is revealing his son again to this audience. Now, I said I'd cover the rest of the chapter, and so I want to do that. Turn with me to Matthew 17. Jesus heals a boy with a demon in chapter 17, verse 14 through 20. So, it says, Jesus, when they came to the crowd, a man came kneeling before them, and he, he begs that Jesus will, would have mercy on his son. This is what he says about his son. He has seizures. He suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often falls into the water. We know as we read on, this boy ain't got no disease. He's not sick with a physical ailment. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us. The father says, I brought him to your disciples. They couldn't heal him. Look at Jesus' response. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. 
And then it says, verse 18, Jesus healed the man, but healed the boy. How did he heal him? He rebuked the demon. This boy was under oppression from a demonic force that impacted his health. It says often he falls into the fire. See, the Bible says that Satan has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He wants to destroy us. So it's no surprise the boy didn't just fall in the fire. The demon was, was compelling and throwing and forcing him into every time he could. He tried to kill him. He tried to injure him. He tried to destroy him. He tried to hurt him. And the father was saying, look, I've been everywhere I can, and, and nobody has a solution for this. And Jesus rebukes everybody around him and says, you are a faithless and twisted generation. We live in a faithless and twisted generation today. We have people who are oppressed in similar ways today, and we have psychiatrists and doctors who promise them drugs to get them, to, to, to bring healing to them, and the drugs do not heal. They need the healing that comes from Jesus. And nobody wants to say that because in the medical field, they can't say that. They won't say that. They won't acknowledge what they cannot understand and prove and show. But I don't have to prove it. I don't have to see it. I simply say what God says. He's created this world. He knows what's going on. We see this over and over and over. Is it happening today? Yeah. You see it all around you. What's the solution? Well, it's a solution that Christ provides. See, people today want to say, hey, doctor, give me a pill. Give me something. Give me a prescription. And I'll go about my way and I'll live my life the way I want to. I can choose to take it or choose not to take it. Jesus says, you got an ailment that ain't going to be resolved by a pill or by a prescription. He says, you have to wholeheartedly come to me. People don't want to hear that. Just heal me and, and, and let me go. God says, no, either I own you or Satan owns you. You want to live with Satan? Then he owns you. Fine, go. You want to be free from Satan? Then you must come to me. See, we want this in between. And God ain't having it. For one, he knows that's the worst thing for you. There is no in between. Either you're going to follow Christ or you're going to be subject to Satan's whims. The world does not want to hear that today. You're saying you're scaring people to get the... I'm just telling you the truth. <laughs> you want to ignore the truth, you do it at your own peril. God knows what's going on spiritually. And Satan wants to have us fooled and deceived. But there's something else that's going on here. Because the disciples couldn't heal this boy. And they later met with Jesus, and they said, what's up? Why can't we 
healed. Now, you notice in Matthew 10, Jesus had sent his disciples and gave them power over demons. He had given them power to heal. He had given them these powers to, to do certain things. And they found out they couldn't do it here. And they came to Jesus and said, well, how come we couldn't heal them? And Jesus says in verse 20, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you before you. He says, because of your little faith, you can't do what you should be able to do. What does he mean there? What is he talking about? What, what is the key here? When he says faith, what does that mean? You see, people think that faith gives me power. It doesn't. It doesn't. What is faith? Faith is trusting in, depending on, relying on something or someone else. When I get into my raggedy car and I turn the ignition, I hope and pray it starts. I'm relying on, trusting on, depending on what? Faith? Chance? Hope? Faith is relying on, trusting on, depending on something. God is calling us to have faith in and upon him. To rely on him, to trust him in him, to depend on him. In other words, it's not our power then that we're living or exercising. It's his power that we need exercise on our behalf in our life. It is trusting his power in our life. It's not something we can manufacture Ourselves. There's something interesting in this chapter. I'm going to jump to it so I can explain uh, uh, what we mean here. It, it, I, I read from the ESV, and you'll see chapter in chapter 17, verse 19 and verse 20, and go to the next verse, and it's 22. You say, wait, verse is missing. You may have noticed that already. Where's verse 21? You may have noticed that. There's a simple explanation for that. And if you, have a, if you have a study Bible, you may see that in your notes, that there are other manuscript families that include verse 21. And this manuscript family that the ESV follows doesn't include that verse 21. In other words, if you, if you understand, manuscripts were, were copies of the original writing that the Word of God is, is based on. And so these copies were, were, were made and they were common to this area and to, to move over to this area. These copies were made and translated over here or transported over here. Um, and so we can see different copies as they moved along. And in one line of copies, it, 
it was said to include that verse 21, and the other line, it didn't have that. You say, well, is the word of God, does that bring doubt on the word of God? No, not, not at all. In fact, what it says is we can see that those who were writing and copying these manuscripts were true to what they had in front of them, and they continue that. And now we can take a look at the family of manuscripts and see how they match. And it's amazing that they absolutely match so well. Now, there are some occasions where one verse does not appear in, 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 in another set of manuscripts. And it's identified for us here. And what is lost in that, we can judge for ourselves whether or not that, that, that is something uh, uh, that, that, that is just absolutely essential to the teaching of the Word of God or, or is, is simply could have been added for explanation later. But we have the evidence right in, for, in front of us, so us for us to see and to judge and to research and to figure out. So it's a good thing that we have the different families and the different groups, and we can see that, and we can see if something is left out. Well, the verse that's left out that, that some would think that, that absolutely needs to be here, it says when Jesus would say, this kind comes out only by fasting. Fasting, fasting and praying. But you ask the question, is that pertinent to what Jesus is absolutely saying? He's saying you are a faithless generation. You are depending on something other than me. Some have used fasting and even their prayers as a means of gaining power that they can use. And God said, no. My power is not given to you. My power is is available through you as you depend and trust in me. Fasting was simply a means to show that dependence and show that trust. You don't get power simply because you fast or simply because you have good intentions to do this or to do that. God is the one that we are to depend on. God is the one that we are to trust in. He's the one that we are to totally rely on, not some other means or some other way. And Jesus is saying, you got to focus off of me, even the disciples. You got to thinking that I gave you this power, and now you can do it on your own, in your own power. No, you can't. You must rely on me. You cannot come into Satan's world, have victory over Satan in your own power, no matter how much you prayed. No matter how much you fasted, Satan's laughing at that. No matter how much you go to church, no matter how much your external means of showing you trust God, it's not the external means, it's, it's actually dependent on God. God, you come and fight my battle. When you come before God, he's not going to ask you what church were you a part of, how strong they were, how many verses did you learn. He's going to ask you, who are you depending for the forgiveness of your sins? Uh, well, I went, to, I, went to, I went to school. I went to a good Bible school. I got a seminary degree, God. You going to let me in heaven? 
that ain't going to get it. He is saying, trust, depend, rely on him. See, this whole chapter is really about that. When he goes to the disciples and says, I want you to get a glimpse of my kingdom, look, everything else is eliminated, Jesus only. When he comes to heal this man, he said, well, why couldn't we do that? This comes by my power alone. It is not promised to you through some external means. You simply need to rely on my power. If you rely on my power, as he said in chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan cannot come and possess my body because Jesus already possesses it. And for all who are trusting in Christ and relying on Christ, they have that same assurance. Romans 8 says, all who trusting in Christ have the Holy Spirit in them. And so he's saying, understand what faith means. So he says, your little faith. Just like Peter, when he was saw Jesus walking on the water. He says, Jesus, if it's you, ask me to come to you, and then I'll know that I have that power to come to you. He did that for a time, and he began to look at the waves. He began to look at the storm, and he began to sink. He stopped his focus on Jesus. He stopped, in other words, trusting and relying in Jesus. We look at our situations. We look at how, how troublesome our world is and we, we doubt and, and, and we, 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 we have all anxiety of, of what's going on instead of relying, trusting, depending on God. See, when my circumstances are good, I can rely on myself. I'm cool. Everything's fine. I'm going to have a good day. But when they're not good, when they're troublesome, I know I can't do it. I must rely on God. God is called, that's what real faith is. Don't ever get to the point where you're okay and you can handle this now. It's a full, full-time reliance on God. God needs to teach us that. I think he was teaching his disciples a lesson in this point. Rely on me. Right after this, in verse 22, he begins to emphasize his death and his resurrection. Remember when he first did that, Peter took him aside and said, hey, this, this, this can't happen. It ain't going to be like that, Jesus. Stop saying that. And Jesus rebuked him strongly by saying, get behind me, Satan, because you're not talking about the things of God when you say that. Peter didn't understand crucifixion just didn't register with him as a means of, of God's glory. What God would use to accomplish what he wanted to, to accomplish. Peter wasn't seeing it that way. But Jesus let him know this is God's purpose. And now he begins to restate and reemphasize this is God's purpose. What is his purpose? He says in verse 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. 
and he will be raised on the third day. Notice their response. They were greatly distressed. We can understand how that would be distressing. It's distressing because we don't know or they didn't understand the plan and purpose of God. And they weren't fully trusting in that plan and that purpose. But Jesus is saying, this is how it's going to be. God has deemed that he was going to save sinners by sending his sinless son, his perfect, holy, sinless son to be crucified by wicked and evil men. And Peter's basically saying, you know, what I would say or what we would say today, I don't like it when it seems like wickedness is ruling, when it seems like they're winning. But God says, hold on a minute. Just hold on. I got this. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. This is according to my purpose and my plan. Trust me and embrace my plan. Don't change it. Don't tweak it. Trust me and embrace it. I want you to notice in this chapter how many times Jesus refers to his death. In verse 9, after they came down from the mountain, he says, don't tell anybody about this vision. He says, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Got to be dead to be raised from the dead, right? He's talking about his death. And then again, in verse 12, when, they, when he talked about Elijah coming first, and he says, Elijah has already come, and they did to him as they desired. And it says, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. It says, then they, in verse 13, then they understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. But John the Baptist has been killed, put to death by wicked Herod. So he speaks of his death again. He said, in other words, he's saying the same thing that had happened to John the Baptist is going to happen to me. That's two times, right? Verse 22, we see it again. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He speaks again and again and again. It's surprising to them, but he speaks to them of God's plan, and God's plan is to bring, to bring victory through seemingly defeat. That's his plan, and he's about to accomplish that. Let me get to the last section here. It's entitled The Temple Tax. It says, they came to Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, keep in mind, why is this happening? This is part of the ongoing assault and attack on Jesus. Remember, they sent the scribes and the Pharisees from Jerusalem. That's like the headquarters, right? They, they, they were coming after Jesus. And, 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 and so all of these questions, all of these attacks on Jesus, here's the next one. It's like, if you can't get them straight up, try to get them for tax evasion. <laughs> so they say, don't, hey, your teacher, don't he pay the tax? Now, when I read this, I, I read it with a voice inflection that I think belongs here. He said, yeah. <laughs> Peter don't know what's going on. 
<laughs> Peter's like, if he's supposed to, I guess he does. And it says, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus came right to Peter and started asking him about, hey, man, what, what was they talking about out there? He said, what do you suppose, Peter? What do you think? Who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax from? And Peter said, well, well, Jesus said, do they take it from their sons or from others? Peter said, from others. What is he saying there? I wrote it down. I don't have time to turn to it, but you'll see in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 3, no, chapter 4, chapter 10, it talks about Solomon's rule. Solomon was, was, was a great king. He's the son of David. He came to be king over Israel. And he built a great kingdom. And the Bible says he was, was of the richest of, of all the earth. But it tells you how he got those riches. You read what he did was his nation became great, and he began to tax the nations around him. They had import taxes. They had every year they had to bring him a certain amount of gold, um, he like, he like, I'm king over everything. You know, show me some respect, right? And that's what he did. He taxed all the nations around him, and he built up great reserves for this, from this. And with that, he built the temple. So Jesus asked the basic question, who do they tax? Themselves or, or others? And the answer is others. Others. So Jesus said, well, then I guess the sons are free, aren't they? Because I'm definitely a son. I'm part of Israel. I was born an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Judah. Listen, my, my mother was Jew. My father is Jew. Uh, well, physical. That's the representative of my human father. I didn't have a human father, but I was born into a Jewish family. Why are you taxing me? But he says, you know, just so they don't get all upset. It's, it's like Jesus, he says, Peter, let's humor them. Let's just humor them. They ask you for tax, let's humor them. You a fisherman, go out and go catch a fish. The first one you catch, open his mouth and bring out a coin. That's going to be enough for you and me. It's like Jesus got a sense of humor. Y'all going to get me on taxes? Really? You don't know who I am? Tax? You're going to tax me on all that I own. I own everything. Okay, Peter, go, go and go fishing, man. The first fish you get, take the gold out of his mouth and go pay all our taxes. Now see what they got to say. They can't say nothing. This is a part of the ongoing onslaught, the attack against Jesus. And he answers it in a beautiful way that shows his power, his supreme authority over, in case they weren't listening, he's already exercised authority over demons. He's already exercised authority over all the forces, what we call forces of nature, right? The storm, the wind, the rain, the sea, all of that. He just says, hey, stop. Peter, walk on the water. It's going to hold you up because I told it to. He says, you stupid people. 
You can look at the sky and discern when it's going to rain or when it's going to storm, but you can't look at me and determine who I clearly am. And you're going to try to put me to death. You think you can kill me? How foolish they are. You think taxes are a problem for me? I'll send Peter out, go fishing, grab a fish, and pay all our tax. Jesus is answering their attack on him. Their tax continue, and in a humorous way, he responds to it to show who he is. The transfiguration shows he's the focus of all of history, and he's a clear focus of God himself. The man with the, the son who was possessed and tormented by a demon. Jesus says, I can do what nobody else can do. Bring the boy to me. He simply rebukes the demon. What does it mean to rebuke? He said, look, I said get out of here. And I mean it. He gone. He has power over all. And now they try to get him on a legal tax issue. He says, no problem. Peter, go fishing. We'll resolve that. Jesus is supreme and he's to be honored by all. And the question is, can you see him yet? Can you see him yet? Do you recognize who he is? God is presenting him to you so that you might worship him now. You might trust him. You might depend on him. You might rely on him for your very existence. Not just your safety and safekeeping and health, but for your very eternity. You might trust this Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word made clear to us. We pray that as you speak to hearts right now, we might ask you to forgive us for a hard heart that would not see Jesus for who he is. We might thank you for opening that hard heart helping us to see our own sinfulness, calling us to turn from that sinful, wicked thinking and embrace your Son, who is the one and only Savior. Speak to hearts right now, Lord. Draw people to your Son through your word. You declared him to be what he is. This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. You commanded us to hear him. And then you displayed his power, his wisdom, his might, his majesty to all who would see it. Now open our eyes that we might see it and allow us to worship. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Forgive us of our hard-heartedness. Forgive us of ignoring and looking, being distracted from Jesus. We gaze on him now as we look to him now. May we trust him, depend on him as our Savior. 
and live for him in obedience to him. We pray this now in Jesus' name.